Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 171, The Apple Ecosystem. Hi, I'm Neil. Last time we talked, the focus was on how Apple was pulling away from the competition. There are two main factors for this development. The first was that Apple itself was seeing momentum. We can point to a revised product strategy in which product categories like the Mac and the iPad were seeing renewed focus. The second factor had to do with the competition. The growing list of bad product bets, problematic vision. It led to the competitive punches that used to hit Apple. They just were falling flat. After recording that episode, and there was the corresponding written article over at AboveAvalon.com, my attention turned back to the Apple ecosystem. And a few questions jumped out at me. From what does Apple's ecosystem derive its power? Why do loyalty and satisfaction rates increase as customers move deeper into the Apple ecosystem? It got me thinking, Apple's ecosystem remains misunderstood. While consensus has come around to accepting the sheer size of Apple's ecosystem, a billion users and nearly 1.6 billion devices, there is still much unknown as to what makes the ecosystem tick. In today's episode, we are going to focus on why I think Apple's ecosystem ends up being about more than just a collection of devices or services. Apple has been quietly building something much larger, and it's still flying under the radar. The best place to begin this discussion is to talk about the products. No company is able to match Apple in offering a cohesive and strategically forward-looking product line. Computers small and light enough to be worn on the body are so next to computers so large that built-in handles are required. But what ends up being even more impressive is all of these products are designed to work seamlessly together. Longtime Above Avalon listeners and readers would be familiar with one of my theories when it comes to Apple's product line and broader product strategy. The theory is called the Grand Unified Theory of Apple products. And this theory outlines how each of Apple's major product categories is designed to help make technology more personal. That means to reduce the barriers that exist between technology and the user. We talked about this in detail in a number of episodes over the years. It looks like episode 44 was dedicated to this theory. So I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes. There was also an Above Avalon report titled Product Vision, How Apple Thinks About the World. And that also went into the Grand Unified Theory of Apple Products in more detail. And that's available to Above Avalon members. I'll include a link to that report in the show notes as well. For those of you who are not familiar with the Grand Unified Theory of Apple Products, I do have an illustration of the theory over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article titled The Secret to Apple's Ecosystem. It's a pretty straightforward illustration, and and that's the point. 
I could make it a lot more complicated. I could put a lot more words into it. But I think it really does capture the essence of this theory. And that is that Apple products are designed to handle tasks once handled by more powerful siblings. And so if you graph or if you lay out all of Apple's product lines, what you'll see is that you could put Mac desktops at the top. And you could say that the role of those products is to push the boundaries of a computer. Look at the Mac Pro, even the iMac Pro, or even just the iMac for that matter. And then you have Mac laptops. Their role is to handle tasks formally given to Mac desktops. Then there's the iPad. Its role is to handle tasks formally given to the Mac. And we keep going down. The iPhone. Its role is to handle tasks formally given to the iPad and Mac. And there's Apple Watch. You could even put wireless AirPods. Their role, Apple wearables, is a handle task formally given to the iPhone. If there was another way of talking about this theory, it really comes down to alternatives. And so what Apple is doing is launching alternatives to existing products. The iPad is a Mac alternative. It's not a replacement. It's not designed to do everything that a Mac can do. But for some people, it can satisfy their workflows. It can satisfy their needs. It can satisfy their daily work habit or their work schedule. That means it's an alternative. The iPhone. It's a Mac and iPad alternative. And then, of course, wearables. It's an iPhone alternative. A lot of people may not agree with that. <laughs> That's one reason why wearables are ushering in a paradigm shift in computing, and Apple Watch is at the front of that. There's then another important part to the theory, and that is the role that new form factors are able to play. They are designed in a way to handle new tasks in unique and different ways. We see this, of course, with the iPad compared to the Mac, the iPhone compared to the Mac, and then, of course, wearables even compared to, say, mobile devices. This plays a key role in my mindset when it comes to paradigm shifts in computing. Design matters. The way we use these products matters. It is the pursuit of making technology more personal that ends up being responsible for devices like Apple Watch and AirPods. The same dynamic is also paving the way for Apple to eventually sell wearables for the face in the form of smart glasses. With 1.6 billion devices in use, it may be natural to conclude that devices are at the source of Apple's ecosystem power. So maybe the devices are giving Apple that advantage versus the competition. This thinking has led some to position the iPhone as the sun in Apple's ecosystem, with other products being the planets revolving around the sun. The idea being 
the iPhone is powering the ecosystem. This is why a lot of people look at something like the Apple Watch as a glorified iPhone accessory. They don't see it as ushering in a new paradigm shift in computing. However, this is a misread of the role Apple devices are actually playing in the ecosystem. Just because the iPhone is used by more people than any other Apple device, it is incorrect to assume that will always be the case. Or more importantly, that other devices are in some way inferior to the iPhone when it comes to handling our workflows. There is something much larger at play here than just a billion users enjoying Apple hardware. This brings us to services. With a revenue run rate of $55 billion per year and 518 million paid subscriptions across its platforms, there is no longer debate as to Apple's ability to succeed with services. However, there is still a lack of consensus as to what role services play in Apple's ecosystem. Decisions like bringing Apple Music to third-party stationary speakers or the Apple TV app to third-party TV sets have confused many people, with some going so far as to conclude that Apple's future is one of a services company. Forget the devices. Apple's really interested in just getting people to use services. In such a world, Apple devices lose much of their value to cheap third-party hardware. This school of thought is responsible for those claims that Apple gave up selling accessories like the Apple TV box and HomePod because customers can access Apple content distribution services on cheaper non-Apple hardware. It's difficult to think of a bigger misread of how Apple thinks and operates as a company than to claim that Apple's future is one of a services company. There are now others who look at Apple's financial success with services as a negative development, a sign of Apple milking existing users of as much profit as possible. This school of thought positions paid services as a long-term liability to the Apple ecosystem. And one quick note about this idea of milking users of profit. I don't know if everyone who says that actually knows the history of that phrase or that action, but it really comes from the 90s. And it relates to Apple's problematic Mac strategy, where the goal for Apple was pretty much to just get more money from existing users rather than focus on expanding the install base. Of course, the Apple of today does the complete opposite. Apple is very focused on continuing to expand the install base. So this idea of existing users being milked a profit, it doesn't apply to today's Apple. But you still see people say, well, they're doing that with certain services. They're doing that with the iPhone. They're doing that here and there. I, I don't agree with any of that. While consensus credits products, which is another way of saying hardware, as a source of Apple's ecosystem power, services are increasingly viewed as a risk factor that can crack holes in the ecosystem. Neither are true. Nearly a billion people are not using iPhones simply because they enjoy the hardware. 
Vice versa, having 518 million paid subscriptions is not a sign of Apple users needing to pay some kind of tax or bounty to remain in Apple's ecosystem. This brings us to some crucial questions. From where then does Apple's ecosystem derive its power? What makes a customer want to move deeper into the Apple ecosystem? To answer those questions, we need to step back from any one product or service and instead look at Apple as a company. It is still common for people to call Apple by whatever is its best-selling or most popular product at any one time. This also applies to whatever product is responsible for Apple's revenue growth. As a result, we hear all too often phrases like, Apple, the iPhone company, or Apple's a services company. I've even seen some people now say Apple is a wearables company. The problem is that Apple shouldn't be defined by any one product, but rather the process that led to Apple having an ecosystem of products and services. What is Apple? It's a design company selling tools that can improve people's lives. These aren't just any tools either. Instead, Apple's very selective in selling tools that are able to foster experiences that people are willing to pay for. And that's something that has become increasingly rare in the consumer tech space. With a design-led culture, Apple is able to put the user experience front and center during product development. This experience's mandate ends up being responsible for Apple's high loyalty and satisfaction rates among users. The 975 million people with an iPhone aren't likely to remain iPhone users because of stellar hardware or compelling software powering that hardware. Instead, loyalty is driven by the experiences associated with using an iPhone. The secret to Apple's ecosystem is that instead of selling products or services, Apple ends up selling experiences made possible by controlling hardware, software, and services. Instead of thinking of Apple's ecosystem in terms of the number of people or devices, a different approach is to consider the number of experiences Apple is offering. I think this is where Apple's true ambitions become visible. By using an iPhone, a customer doesn't just receive one experience during the day. It's not two or three either. Instead, nearly everything that is consumed on that device has the potential of leading to a good or bad experience. This is why Apple's control of hardware, software, and services plays such a crucial role. It is this framework that serves as motivation for Apple to do something like Apple TV+, or even Apple News. We can maybe even just sum up a lot of this and say Apple's content distribution arm. It's not that Apple's doing all of these services because, well, other companies are doing it. We have to do it as well. There needs to be something more there. Because eventually you're going to see that come through with the product. You're going to see what is the motivation here. For Apple, they see a way of standing out from the crowd and delivering experience to their customers. 
that's the motivation. That, that is why you see Apple doing what they are doing. It ultimately always comes back to the experience. This brings up my point where instead of looking at Apple's ecosystem in terms of the number of users or the number of devices, you can look at it as the number of experiences delivered in a single day. That number would probably be tens, if not hundreds of billions of experiences. Having this ecosystem of experiences ultimately represents the biggest challenge to Apple competitors. If your goal is to try to get someone to jump from the Apple ship, coming up with an iPhone alternative isn't good enough. Instead, you need to come up with even better experiences than those found in the Apple ecosystem. Here's the problem for competitors. As someone moves deeper into the Apple ecosystem, because again, they are in pursuit of additional premium experiences. That's the driver there. You as the competitor need to figure out a way of recreating that growing list of experiences. Can it even be done? When looking at the wearables industry, the answer as of today is no. It is no longer good enough to just sell an Apple Watch competitor. It is no longer good enough to just sell a pair of wireless headphones. Apple users are not buying those devices just because of the hardware or just because of the software. They are buying those devices because they enjoy the experiences that those devices deliver. The craziest part to all of this is I don't think Apple competitors have a clue. I just don't. And I don't say that lightly either. Instead, I'm looking at what consultants, analysts, pundits are saying. You are not getting the type of discussion that we're having this episode. It's just different. Wearables, for example, are just simply viewed in a fundamentally different way. And I disagree with where consensus is. And so I don't think it's a given that we can say Apple competitors, yeah, they really know what's happening. They just can't respond to it. I don't think we're at that point yet. (laughs) I think it's a lot worse. I think they don't really know what is happening. They still don't know why tens of millions of people are buying Apple wearables. This contributes to my thinking that Apple doesn't just have a five- or maybe even 10-year lead in wearables, and said we are looking at something much more significant here, in which even if competitors feel that they have a viable alternative to something like an Apple Watch or something like wireless AirPods, when you think about it in terms of experiences, there's no match. And I don't see that competitive dynamic changing. This brings us to one of the more interesting or intriguing aspects of Apple's ecosystem. Nearly half of Apple users still only use just one Apple device, an iPhone. The idea that every Apple user owns all of these Apple devices and is paying for all of these services is wrong. The implication is that Apple's billion users own and use quite a bit of non-Apple hardware. Today, that non-Apple hardware could include TV sets, cheap stationary speakers, and CarPlay-equipped automobiles. 
Since Apple's product strategy and organizational structure rewards saying no more than yes, there will likely always be opportunities for other companies selling hardware to participate in the Apple ecosystem. This ends up being a Trojan horse for Apple. Instead of needing to have a new customer jump with both feet into the Apple ecosystem from day one, something that isn't likely, especially as the next marginal customer will be coming from the middle tier of the market, Apple only needs this customer to buy or use one Apple tool. Management is confident that one tool will eventually turn into two tools and then three, since humans gravitate toward premium experiences. As one's Apple tool collection grows, the number of experiences made possible by those tools increases. This has the impact of increasing customer satisfaction and loyalty, and the flywheel continues to turn. So how then do you get this flywheel moving in the first place? You build bridges, allowing new customers to move deeper into the ecosystem. Decisions like making Apple Music available on non-Apple hardware and bringing the Apple TV app to Samsung TVs are examples of such bridges. When thinking about how Apple's ecosystem will evolve, the focus shouldn't be on which new devices or services Apple can come up with, but rather on how Apple can offer new experiences to its customers. We already know the blueprint for creating such experiences. Leveraging control over hardware, software, and services. Technology's battle lines are currently being redrawn, with the goal being to capture the most valuable real estate in our lives. Our health, homes, and transportation. Bets on software that completely reimagines the way we approach these verticals will likely prove to be good bets. Timing remains the big unknown. This raises a question. How will Apple approach new verticals and industries? Would Apple attempt to recreate entirely new device lineups for each industry? Will the grand unified theory of Apple products be torn apart? Or will there be multiple grand unified theories of Apple products? Maybe one for personal devices, one for transportation, one for housing. Instead of selling an $80,000 electric car or moving headfirst into selling a range of first-party smart home hardware, Apple's current ecosystem provides clues as to how the company can approach these new industries. Consider transportation. The point of Apple entering transportation wouldn't be to sell cars mopeds, or bicycles. Instead, it would be to sell experiences that Apple customers can consume on the road. The point of Apple moving deeper into smart homes wouldn't be to sell all of these smart home gadgets, some of which may require an electrician to install. Instead, it would be to sell experiences that Apple customers can consume in the home. Apple developing autonomous car remains difficult for many to wrap their minds around. The idea of Apple one day getting into housing is still considered a fantasy by most. 
However, such ideas make a lot of sense when thinking about how we consume experiences during the day. An autonomous car is nothing more than a room on wheels. A house is, of course, just a series of rooms connected to each other. With each, Apple would be looking to create environments that can support new experiences. This brings us back to Apple's current product line. And that includes both the hardware and services. It is incorrect to assume that Apple entering new industries will result in the company throwing away all of its current products. Instead, those tools stand to play major roles in delivering experiences in new industries. Apple's interest for Project Titan isn't to beat or copy Tesla, but rather to figure out a way to have personal gadgets provide compelling experiences on the road. Such experiences could include Apple glasses being used to find the right autonomous Apple car to enter. Meanwhile, the Apple Watch can be used as identification for actually entering that Apple car. Once inside the vehicle, the digital assistant found on the wrist or in front of our eyes could then be used to convert the car's hardware to suit our needs. A similar dynamic would be found with smart homes, relying on personal gadgets, especially wearables, to come up with premium experiences in the home. We are seeing the early stages of this with a product like HomePod and the way the device can be seamlessly used with an Apple Watch. The idea that Apple would enter the transportation and housing industry simply to come up with more areas for its users to engage with wearables may seem preposterous today. However, the idea that a single company would be able to deliver hundreds of billions of experiences per day by selling tools consisting of hardware, software, and services was similarly once a fantasy. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the analysis and perspective found in this podcast episode and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you would find a lot of value in Above Avalon membership. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. These daily updates are emails. Each one is about 2,000 words and would be delivered directly into your inbox Monday through Thursday. In these updates, I talk about everything that I think matters in the world of Apple. That can include Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on current news, Apple competitors, and of course, all of my Apple financial estimates and full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. One area where Above Avalon is different than a lot of other publications is that instead of covering industries and then seeing how Apple fits into those industries, I do it the other way around. I always begin all of my analysis from the perspective of Apple. I'm interested in how Apple thinks about the world. How does Apple look at a new industry and try to figure out where is their spot? How can they add chaos to that new industry? I feel very strongly that when you take that kind of framework and you combine it with my unique perspective, that leads to more accurate Apple analysis. Above Avalon daily updates are available exclusively to Above Avalon members. So to have these updates delivered directly into your inbox as they are published, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month 
or $200 per year. Once on the membership page, you will also find sample daily updates. So that will give you a good sense of what these daily updates are like. In addition, you will find a full list of member privileges and benefits, some of which include access to the archives. You can go back and read roughly a thousand daily updates that have already been published. There is a form so you can chat with other Above Avalon members on various topics. Members also have access to Above Avalon reports at no additional cost. Each report is four to 5,000 words and covers one Apple topic. Most are usually about Apple's business and financial strategy. As an Above Avalon member, you will be playing an active role in supporting Above Avalon as an independent source of Apple analysis. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by its members. So if you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance, and I will give you a very early welcome. I am confident you will find a lot of value in Above Avalon membership. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.